Some days change everything. For example, October the 4th, 1968, the personal computer was invented. Or July 21st, 1969, man walked on the moon. July 10th, 1973, the independent country of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas was established. Some dates change everything. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther begins the Protestant Reformation. April 3rd, 33 AD, Christ was resurrected from the dead. And May 25th, AD 33, the day of Pentecost, the church was born. Some dates and some days change everything. Today, we're going to look at the entire second chapter of the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles there at home, would you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? We're going to look at the whole chapter with the help of the Lord this morning under four headings. I preview for you. The day of Pentecost filled believers with the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 13. Number two, the day of Pentecost elevated the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in verses 14 to 36. Number three, the day of Pentecost accelerated church growth. We're going to see that in verses 37 to 41. And fourth, the day of Pentecost defined local church ministry. We're going to see that in verses 42 to 47. So quickly, let's scan through this chapter, gleaning high points of application and teaching by the first heading, the day of Pentecost filled believers with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read the first 13 verses of Acts 2 from the ESV. Follow along at home, please. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language." Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they're all full of new wine. The day of Pentecost filled believers with the Holy Spirit. I want us to notice three things from the verses I have just read. Number one, filling by the Holy Spirit is controlling. See it in verse four, verse four. And they were all filled with the, with the Holy Spirit 
and I'll paraphrase, and because they were filled, they were controlled such that they could speak in other tongues. So filling then and filling now by the Holy Spirit is an issue of control. It's not an issue of getting more gas in your tank. It's an issue of us getting a new driver behind our wheels. It's not that we get more of the Holy Spirit when we're filled by him. It's that he gets more of us to control. And so filling of the Spirit is an issue of controlling. Number two, I want you to see in the verses that tongues were known languages which were previously unknown to the speakers. I see that in verses 5 to 11. This is very important. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them, watch it, speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these men who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then it lists the various languages they heard on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit allowed spirit-filled believers in Christ to speak in tongues. So will you notice, please, that tongues back then, and if there are still tongues today, as some believe, back then, and if they are still present today, they were not gibberish. They were not speaking unintelligible speech that had to be somehow interpreted because it didn't have a dictionary meaning to the words that they were saying. No, they were able to speak known languages, but that were unknown to them. It would be like if someone watching the live stream in worship today is Italian and doesn't speak a word of English. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God enabled me to speak fluent Italian, although I've never spoken Italian before in my life. And it's interesting that when you look at the occurrence of tongues as they appear in the book of Acts, which is the chronological diary, recall, of the first 60 years of the church's existence, when you look at, whenever you see that tongues emerge in this story of the first 60 years of the church, if you go back to Acts 1.8, where it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, Jesus said, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So I've used the example before. Throw a rock into the still sea where it splash points in the water is Jerusalem. It ripples out first to Judea and Samaria. It ripples out second to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you study the book of Acts and look where tongues appear, it's at the seam. It's always at the seam between these circles that are going out from the splash point. In other words, when the gospel needed authentic, authenticizing work of the Holy Spirit out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria, boom, there were tongues. And then once the gospel was authenticated in Judea and Samaria, and it, God wanted to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth, at the seam between Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, tongues. So tongues were known languages spoken by speakers who previously did not know the languages they spoke for the authentication of the gospel and for the spread of the gospel as fast as possible to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
So we're seeing in the first verses that we're reading that the day of Pentecost filled believers with the Holy Spirit and that filling is controlling and that tongues were known languages. Number three, just like a drunk looks silly to a sober person, a Christian who is spirit-filled sometimes is going to look silly to a Christian who isn't spirit-filled. And certainly, a Christian who is spirit-filled is most always going to look silly to a lost person who does not yet have Christ as Savior or the Holy Spirit as indwelling God. Have you ever been accused of doing something that was silly when you obeyed Christ? Has have anybody ever told you that that's a crazy thing to think or a crazy thing to do? but you knew that you were following the leading of the Holy Spirit in congruence with the Scriptures? A Holy Spirit-filled and controlled Christian is going to look silly to a Christian who is not allowing him or herself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And certainly, a Spirit-filled Christian who is obeying the leading of the Holy Spirit in his or her life is most probably going to look silly to the person who does not yet know Christ as Savior. So the first point, the day of Pentecost filled believers with the Holy Spirit. On to our second point, the day of Pentecost elevated the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost. Graciously, God has given us the content of that sermon in Scripture, and we're going to read verses 14 to 36, a rather extended section of the chapter. This is the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and you're going to see with me that this sermon, like every good sermon still, elevated the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's hear Peter's sermon beginning at verse 14, Acts 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these things are, these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord." And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, 
I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, and that I may not be shaken. The sermon continues. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make full joy in your presence. Peter went on to preach. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The bottom line of Peter's wonderful Day of Pentecost sermon is the last line of the sermon, which I just read, verse 36. The bottom line of Peter's sermon, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so incredible body of Christ. I humbly ask myself and I humbly ask each of you, is this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, to you? Do you never say no to him? The fact is, if I say no to Jesus about anything, he's not Lord at that point in my life. Same for you. When Jesus Christ is functioning as Lord and Christ in our lives as believers and followers of him, then nothing he tells us to do in his word is something we say no to. If you've been saying no, repent and say yes. The Apostle Paul could say of his own life, God overtakes, God undertakes, and God takes over. Is that your story? God has overtaken you. God has undertaken for you. And now has, God has taken over every aspect of you to be your boss, your master, your authority. Is that true? That's the joyous and normal Christian life. That's what the Spirit-filled Christian thinks, and that's what the Spirit-filled Christian does. Oh, may we be people who have been overtaken by Christ, 
people that Christ has undertaken for in all of our life circumstances, and persons that gladly say, Jesus Christ has taken over everything there is about me in my life. When that happens, we are happy and we are pleased to live as though there is an under new management sign hung around our necks 24-7, seven days a week, under new management. And the prescribed way that we go public with the fact that we're hanging a sign around our neck permanently under new management is believers' water baptism. And so if you are saved and you are wanting to live under the lordship of Christ, obedient all the matters he's shared with you in his word, the first step of living under the lordship of Christ as a fully committed follower of his is to request water baptism since your conversion if you have not done so already. 3260800 call us this week under new management peter preached that first day of pentecost that jesus christ is both lord and christ and today on behalf of the lord and the christ i ask is he lord and christ of your life i ask have you been water baptized since your conversion the third point Not only does the day of Pentecost see the filling of believers with the Holy Spirit, saw the elevating of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in the third place, the day of Pentecost accelerated church growth. I see that in verses 37 to 41 of our chapter. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's a spirit-anointed sermon. It prompts the persons who hear the sermon to ask, what should we do? How should we change? How should we be? Bless them. They said, men and brethren, verse 37, what shall we do? 38, then Peter said to them, repent. That is, change your mind about Christ so that it changes your behavior. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It says, for the remission of sins, but a better translation of the preposition would be because of the remission of sins. We are water baptized not to remit our sins, but because our sins have been remitted by the blood of Christ, we go public with that private spiritual transaction by being water baptized. 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, that is, water baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so the third point, as you're making notes on chapter 2 today, the third point is that the day of Pentecost accelerated church growth. And three things jump out of verses 37 to 41. Very quickly, three things stand out to me. Number one, they knew there were 3,000 new converts on the day of Pentecost. That means they counted. They counted. They said about 3,000 trusted Christ alone for salvation that day of Pentecost. As I mentioned in my pastoral prayer, 
conservative statistics done by evangelical Christians who put their finger on the pulse of the world spiritually say that globally, on average, every single day, about 52,000 new converts to Christ are born again. That's amazing. Christ is building his church during COVID. Christ will always build his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. We are victors walking in the wake of Christ's already won victory. And so the first thing that jumps out at me is that the accelerated growth of the church was uh, observed and recorded in that they said they knew there were 3,000 new converts to Christ the day of Pentecost when it descended upon the believers. They spoke in known languages that were previously unknown to them as speakers. 3,000 people were convinced and trusted Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Have you trusted Christ to be your Lord and Savior? No one can do that for you. It's a personal decision and response to the grace of God. To transfer one's trust completely off of oneself, off of religion, off of anything else, and put it squarely, completely onto Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, the blood shed for payment of sin, as evidenced by the empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ, the Father raised the Son from the dead to evidence to prove decisively that all of your sins are paid for in full by the shed blood of Christ. Is that your testimony? Is that where your stake in the ground is nailed? Is that your assurance? Trust Christ and only Christ as Savior if you've never done so before. The time may be short for you and all of us. The second thing I see in these verses is that the gospel message cut to the heart of those who heard it. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. There was no need to jazz up the simple, powerful gospel message, nor was there any need to dumb it down. Scripture was then, and Scripture continues to be today, a scalpel that God uses to perform spiritual surgery on hearts and lives. Hebrews 4, verse 12, you know the verse. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, yes, the gospel, the message that Christ has died for sins and arisen from the dead is a message that cuts to the heart of those who will hear it. And it either makes you mad, the Taliban, or it makes you glad, the Afghani believers being persecuted at this hour. The word of God, specifically the gospel by which we are saved, is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest knife you have in your kitchen. It's piercing. It's discerning. It's revealing of our intentions and our motives. The gospel message that Peter shared in that day of Pentecost sermon when 3,000 turned to Christ for salvation, it cut to the hearts of those who heard it. A friend of mine from Pennsylvania, a minister of the gospel, Chris is his name, he went to Yale University, a brilliant 
believer in Jesus Christ. And he was called of God to represent Jesus Christ and to preach on the campus of Yale University, extremely liberal uh, university, Ivy League University in the United States. And Chris would do open-air preaching at Yale. And he told me that one day he was in a driving rainstorm, a fall day, cold, bitter, driving rain, and he held an umbrella in one hand and a Bible in the other hand, and he preached, and he looked, and nobody, nobody was, nobody was listening. They were just getting into the buildings to get out of the rain, and they were all scurrying around, and no one stopped to listen to his preaching, as usually they stopped on better weather days. But he kept having sensed in the Spirit of God and pressing upon his heart, keep preaching, keep preaching, keep preaching. So he did. He preached his full sermon under an umbrella with nobody noticeably watching at Yale University. Many thought he was crazy. He looked silly to people who didn't yet know Christ. Maybe he looked silly to the born-again Christians at Yale who weren't walking in the Spirit that day. He looked silly. But you know what? Some years later, Chris was ministering the Word of God in New York City in a certain gathering. And after he had preached in that setting, a a man came up to him. He said, you preached at Yale University in the fall of, and he named the year. Yes, I did. He said, do you remember a day in the fall when it was driving cold rain, and you were under an umbrella you were holding for yourself, and you preached the salvation message? Yes, I do remember that. He said, I was listening. I was so depressed under the pressures of the university. I was suicidal. And I couldn't stop listening. I hid around the corner of the building. You couldn't see me. But I listened to every word you preached. I would duck my head around the corner of the building periodically, but mostly I stayed out of your sight. And the words you preach from the Bible penetrated my heart, and I turned to Christ and asked him to be my Lord and Savior by a simple prayer in the rainstorm, and I was saved that day. Thank you for persevering and obeying God and preaching. You see, the gospel is God's dynamite power unto salvation for all who will believe, and we may not see the the visible responses, but there are responses that God is working and accomplishing whenever we share our faith. We'll come to sharing our faith in a moment here. And so the gospel message cut to the heart on the day of Pentecost, and it still cuts to the heart at Yale University or Nassau, Bahamas, or wherever we share it. Third thing, proper repentance on the day of Pentecost led to believer baptisms. Verse 38 Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized, that is, water baptized, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So proper repentance back on the day of Pentecost and proper repentance in 2021 where we live and minister produces believers requesting the public identification with Christ as Lord and Savior through the waters of baptism. Again, I asked you, have you been water baptized? Not as a baby, not christened, 
But since you trusted Christ to be your Savior, have you gone public with that private reality? It's a command, not a suggestion. The New Testament knows nothing about unbaptized, born-again Christians. It knows nothing of the unwater-baptized, born-again Christian. That doesn't mean you have to be water-baptized to be born-again. No, it means that when you are born-again, you ask to be water-baptized. You make it public what's happened already privately in your heart. And so in these ways, with the 3,000 new converts, with the gospel message cutting to the heart, and with repentance issuing forth into requests for water baptism, the wonderful day of Pentecost blessing was that the church growth accelerated. The baby church's growth accelerated. Fourth, on the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost defined local church ministry. Verses 42 to 47, and they, that is the believers in Jerusalem, new converts and the former followers of Christ before his crucifixion, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then the fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily, continuing daily, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Fortunately, thank God, these verses that report what happened on the day of Pentecost give us God's definition of what any local church should be doing to be a New Testament church. And those things are doctrine, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And you need to have all four in any local church assembly to be a church. You have to be teaching and preaching and living by sound doctrine. You have to have meaningful sharing of life together under the flag of the gospel, that's fellowship. You need to remember the Lord's sacrifice on the cross as a memorial through the Lord's Supper. And you need to be a praying people, people who not only pray individually to God, but corporately come together regularly to pray. If there's ever been a time, Bahamas, incredible body of Christ, and we need to pray, it's now. Monday night, tomorrow night, 6.30 p.m. by Zoom link. Please join us for a sweet time of prayer. And so the day of Pentecost defined local church ministry as being doctrine, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And as I've said, you have to have all four to be a New Testament church. And what happened? What happened when they allowed God to shape the ministry of the baby church, just days old at that point. What happened? Well, good happened. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord 
added to the church daily those who were being saved. They had conversions, people turning from self and sin and Satan, turning in faith to believe in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They had conversions. Can I just share from my heart this morning? Why do we see so few conversions through our ministry as a church? Why do we rarely hear that someone has trusted Christ and been born again through the witness of the people of Calvary Bible Church? Why is that? Are we not sharing our faith? Only God knows. But I know that the gospel is good seed. And if we will but cast the seed each day, looking for each moment within each day to tell people the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, it's good seed. And God will cause the seed to germinate in certain persons' hearts if we will sow the seed. I know that. I've told you before that funerals are the times when we close the eyes of the dead to open the eyes of the living. COVID, ongoing COVID, is like a big global funeral. It is closing the eyes of plenty of dead people, unfortunately with God's purpose that those of us who are living have our eyes opened to the gospel, our eyes opened to the Savior, our hearts inclined to trust him and only him for salvation. Are we sharing our faith during COVID? God has people ready. I have rarely seen a time in my 30-plus years of pastoring when people are not more seriously, spiritually open to the gospel than right now because they're scared. They've attended a funeral this month of a loved one. They know our morgue is full. They know our beds are full. They know the doctors and nurses have to figure out who gets the ventilator when there's more than one person who needs the last ventilator. This is the reality that we are living with, folks. And if there was ever a time to share the gospel, it's now. If not now, when? And if not us, who? Oh, may this be a week when you prayerfully and I prayerfully ask the Lord for the opportunity, the boldness, and the love to share the gospel with someone, to invite them to trust Christ and only Christ to be their Savior, and then we can see conversion growth in our church that we are lacking so much. That's my prayer for me, and that's my prayer for you. Can we run that video? On a dangerous sea coast notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, it was merely a hut with only one boat, but the few members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many lives were saved by this brave band who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place.
Some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time, energy and money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased, new crews were trained. The station, once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant, began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough, handmade equipment was discarded and sophisticated, classy systems were installed. The huts, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture and systems. By the time of its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and its objectives had begun to shift. It was now used as a sort of clubhouse, an attractive building for public gathering. Saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful and calming the disturbed rarely occurred. Fewer members were interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. Life-saving motifs still prevailed in the club's decorations. There was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting, which helped hide the layer of dust upon the once-used vessel. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, some terribly sick and lonely. Others were different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside, away from the club, so victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting there were strong words and angry feelings, which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all involvements with shipwreck victims. As you'd expect, some still insisted on saving lives, that this was their primary objective, that their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help regardless of their club's beauty or size or decorations. They were voted down and told if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. As the years passed, the new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into another club, and yet another life-saving station was begun. History repeated itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drown at sea, and so few others seem to care. So very few. The fact is that too often I think we, without thinking, say of a person we have learned that has passed away, may he or she rest in peace. Sometimes when we say that, we are theologically wrong and we know that we are, but we say it anyway. The fact is that not everybody dies to enter into eternal and everlasting peace. There's a heaven to be gained by grace and there's a hell to be avoided by repentance. When the Titanic sank, Liverpool, the home headquarters of the White Star Line, 
posted two lists, only two lists. Those known to be saved, those known to be lost. There was no first class, second class, third class passenger listings. Those known to be saved and those known to be lost. God give us an urgency in this time of COVID to speak up for the Savior. The time for being indirect and hesitant and slow to speak the gospel is over. It's over. May we be active witnesses because Jesus before ascension said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why? And you shall be witnesses to me. That's why the Holy Spirit's power has been given to us, so that we will be witnesses to Christ. Let's use the power this week. Let's use the power to be witnesses of Christ every day we have on loan from God until we go to glory. Let's share our faith. Lord, thank you for the day of Pentecost and the precious, precious gift you first gave of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so very much that he continues to come to live within us as born-again believers the minute we trust Christ. Thank you. He fills us to control us, that he elevates the Lord Jesus Christ, that he accelerates the church's numerical growth, and that he, the Spirit of God, through the scriptures, defines what it means to have a local church ministry. Oh, Lord. May we about your, be about your business, and may we not allow this lighthouse to become a club. And we pray in this in Jesus' name. Amen.